This episode discusses themes of domestic violence, which may be distressing for some listeners. If you or anyone you know is currently experiencing or has experiences with domestic violence, please remember that you are not alone. Contact 1800RESPECT or ICSA for support. More details in the show notes. Call triple zero if you're in immediate danger. Another quick heads up that because of some isolation restrictions, we had to record this episode virtually. So the audio quality for this episode is a little different to normal. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandon. Thanks for joining us. In collaboration with the Behind Closed Doors event, this episode is the first of a two-part series exploring the topic of domestic violence. In the first instalment, we're joined by two women who have lived experiences and are now doing powerful advocacy work in this space. For confidentiality, we've altered their voices and referred to them using mask names. This is an incredibly important topic and one that we've wanted to cover on our podcast for some time now. But what has really brought this to the forefront for us now is an upcoming event which we learnt more about in our last mini-episode. A wonderful group of South Asian Australians are putting on a 60-minute immersive experience called Behind Closed Doors, where the performing arts will be used to reflect and unpack domestic violence and abuse in our South Asian community. Please make sure to check out our last mini-episode for more information and our show notes for where you can get tickets. In the second part of this series to be released next week, we speak with a caseworker and psychologist doing incredible work in the field. We learn more about the prevalence of domestic violence in South Asian communities, the stigmas, barriers and systemic challenges for South Asians to seek help and the changes which need to be made in the broader Australian society to change the narrative. But for now, on to this week's episode. Priya and Shri, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this topic. I know wouldn't be easy for the both of you, but we really appreciate you sharing your time and also sharing your experiences. I'm sure a lot of our audience would be really grateful to hear others who have been in this type of situation when it comes to domestic violence. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And as everyone knows, uh, these conversations, like Romy mentioned, aren't easy, but they're important. So then we can change the narrative when it comes to topics like this. And I know we said this before we started recording, but just to reiterate, if any of the questions you're not comfortable answering or you need to take a break, please feel free to call that out. We want to make sure that we have a safe space to have this conversation. Um, we know that you both have had very personal experiences when it comes to domestic violence. Where you're comfortable, could you please share a little bit about your experience? We'll start with Priya. Sure, and thanks for having us here today. The way I find it easiest to describe the situations I was in was that I was a child of domestic violence. It was honestly just present every day. Again, there was just constant tension in the air, whether it was, was my father's favourite food cooked that night or whether you were responding in a way that was slightly disrespectful down to, you know, giving him the wrong look. And I, I didn't realise at the time, but I now retrospectively realise it was all that little bit worse if he had been drinking mm. as well. And it's strange at the time, it felt so normal. That's the thing that I, I think if I could reflect on is probably the scariest part and it wasn't just normal because it was present every day. It was normal because most other Sri Lankan families I knew 
had the similar sort of constant tension in the air within their families as well. Right. And it's something that I never really talked about with friends because it was, you know, not nice to talk about family issues outside of the house. And so I had just assumed this was what everyone was going through. And it was only when I was older and shared things like probably the one that I thought was really standard that really shocked a lot of people was um, there was always broken glass around the house and Mm. it would just be pretty standard. Like I'd go to sit down and do some music practice. And if I was near the kitchen, it was quite standard to see just a bit of shiny piece of glass and just pick it up and put it in the bin. And only after kind of saying that as actually a joke in front of friends and just seeing their faces, I started to realise actually there were bits of my childhood that was not a standard and have actually sunk in deeper and created traumatic experiences that have affected me more than I realised. And how old were you, could you recall, when you first started experiencing all of this? Honestly, it felt like my whole childhood. Right. And from time to time now still. Um, So my parents are still together. Mm. And the things that sort of stick out as things that um, really show the signs of how bad the abuse was, just that feeling of anxiety and always being on edge. Um, Weird habits, like I actually didn't realize I had tension headaches in between my eyebrows for most of my life until I had moved away from home. And it was actually as if something had popped between my eyebrows and suddenly this, this tension that I'd been holding for forever kind of went away. Um, another thing that always comes to mind is I remember as a child, just always going to my room and crying in secret. And I remember hating weekends which is strange for a kid. But that was because, especially Sunday morning, for some reason, I would usually wake up to the sound of my parents fighting. Mm. Mm. More, more time on a weekend being at home in a domestic violence situation. I'm so sorry to hear that you had to go through that and thank you for sharing yeah. that experience. Obviously, you're going through this at such a young age and you recognised that what was happening was wrong. What were your coping mechanisms in dealing with everything that was happening So at the time, I think I did intuitively what most human beings do in these situations, which is just find ways to survive. So there was the crying alone in my room. There was just putting on a pretty hard front. Mm. I was described by many times by my friends as being kind of like emotionless. um, And it was kind of like my thing. Right. as you start to reflect when you're older, I was actually incredibly emotional. I just didn't want to show that vulnerability. And I grew up not wanting to feel reliant on other people, I'm realising. So I had this saying, which was, friends are a luxury, they're a nice to have. And I thought I was so wise thinking these things at the time, but I'm realising they were largely coping mechanisms of wanting to protect my heart. Um, but probably the ones that were really detrimental were when I did get into relationships as I got older, there was actually a very big reliance on my partner for safety, for happiness Mm -hmm. and for that kind of emotional reliance on them. And it created a 
reliance on an individual that just wasn't fair for any single person because I I didn't want that from my family and I didn't want that from my friends because I I was scared because I didn't trust them Mm. and so I think a lot of the coping was was that yeah for sure and we'll come back to a few of the things that you mentioned in a little bit but from your perspective Shree did your experiences with domestic violence start at a really young age as well so similar to Priya um it was very much normal for me like I don't recall a particular age it was present way before I was born Mm. so in my context it was my father that was violent towards my sister my mum and I and so even when I was a young age I recall both of them kind of telling me things like oh this happened even before you were born Um, It was kind of a known, shared thing amongst the three of us girls that this is just how life is within our family. Um, So that was normalised within our family, but there was a hidden, I guess, unspoken agreement that we would never tell anyone else outside of the family. So there'll be, I don't know how much detail I should go into, but there's clear moments of me witnessing my dad strangling my mum in a car because we were driving to friends' houses and he'll get angry, he'll stop on the side of the road and you know, ask my mom to get out. And then we'll, that would end, and then we'll go to a friend's house, and then we're all happy. We're all, like, having to come in with a smile, um, come in normal, um, but it was just an agreement amongst all of us that we don't say this to anyone. So, yeah, I guess it was very much normalised within the family, but we knew something was not to be spoken outside. In terms of the abuse towards my sister and I, I guess that was kind of more normalised also outside of the family in the sense that, you know, you'd hear other kids being disciplined by their parents by, you know, giving them a smack. And so you'd kind of be like, oh, I I think my other South Asian friends might understand this. But there was definitely a limit to which I would disclose things to friends. Mm. Yeah, the really frightening thing is that you can go through experiences like that and, as you mentioned, put on this face that everything is okay when you're at those dinner parties and everyone in the family is acting normal and looks like Mm. everything is perfect at the surface level, which is the really frightening part, right? Because Mm. who knows if anyone is actually going through something like this but hiding it because of that mask that they're able to put on. Mm, Definitely. I guess there were moments, though, that I think other families caught on there was tension and then I guess there was moments where... Like, they would comment to my dad, don't be so harsh on them. And it was just, that was just left. They didn't, I guess they didn't know the extent of everything because we didn't share Mm. the extent. But I guess there was some understanding that this person that was my father could be a bit violent or gets a bit of a temper. Yeah. And it's so easy as well, like you said, to kind of downplay what you're going through, right? To make it seem like it is normal. Like the whole, like, all South Asian kids get a smack when they grow up, Mm. but then it's like where do you draw those boundaries, right? So it's like Mm. you're kind of trying to put yourself into that same category when, like, that wasn't what you were going through. It was a much more extreme situation. Really appreciate you sharing that as well. I guess, um, Shri, like, what was your coping mechanism when it came to dealing with this as a young person? I think something that um, Priya said that also was similar to mine was um, that weekends were horrid. But one thing that was a collective coping mechanism between my mom, sister and I was my mom loved to host people. And I don't know if that's just because of who she is or because she tried to avoid alone time with us four. 
So she, every weekend she would invite people or she would ask friends if like we can have a dinner or something so that we would go somewhere or they would come over. And so that meant there was like a task to do. Either that was cleaning the house and every one of our family members had a designated task and we didn't need to interact. Uh, it was like a common goal. So I think my mum helped facilitate that coping mechanism. But my mum mm-hmm. definitely remembers us asking from a very young age, like, oh, is anyone coming over on the weekend? Are we doing anything? Because there was that general anxiety over, please have something planned so that we don't have to, like, you know, spend alone time with just the four of us because otherwise... Yeah. yeah. And it's like a distraction as well, Mm. right, from what's going on because you're distracted by all these tasks that you have to do to have people over and then also it means that it won't just be you guys alone again it's like sort of the masking what was happening I suppose as well exactly yeah I think what it also highlights by the way if I can interject is that you never know what's going on yeah behind closed doors it's so easy in these situations for us to switch from one context to another because we've been taught and told that this is how we we need to be And it's really important when we look at the statistics around domestic abuse and violence to not be ignorant as a community Mm. and to look actively for the signs and to proactively have these conversations because sometimes the happiest of smiles are actually the strongest facade for for what's really happening. Mm. Yeah, for sure. When you were that young going through what you were going through, Priya, did any part of you, you know, speak to the people in your house who were affected by this to say, you know, why, why aren't we leaving? Why aren't we doing anything about this? The thing that I've actually learned more recently through therapy and, and actually having these discussions with other people with lived experience is the situation doesn't just damage the relationship with the perpetrator it actually has the ability to damage your relationship with your whole family Mm. because it causes tension in the household and and everyone reacts to that differently. And I think in my situation, there was one part of me as a child who was angry at my mum when she would actually argue back where I wanted her to just stop because as a child, you think if you just stop, then it will all just stop. Right, yeah. And then you've got the tension with your sibling and in my case, being the youngest sibling, them wanting to protect me. And in the protecting of me, actually creating distance between the two of us as well. And so I think my reaction was if we just ignore it, if we stop arguing back, if we just go in our room, it'll go away. I think my sibling was more of the opinion of, no, this needs to stop and we need to force it to stop. And my mum, obviously torn between love for her children, love for her partner, but then also, you know, community values and cultural values that were just kind of conflicting between all of them. And so I think it kind of manifested in different ways on on how we want to deal with it. And I think even as you get older, you learn more and and, and I think the reason I actually was really keen on, on coming to Stuck In Between specifically is because at the essence of this as well, a large part of the conflict is us growing up in Australia 
we're taught certain values at home and then we're taught certain values by the Australian society or by school or by our peers. And they're really conflicting. And so we still have these really strong family values and we still have the strong sense of justice and fairness. And they're really conflicting as a child at a young age. And making sense of that, it just changes it each and every year with more that you learn, the people you're exposed to, and, and I guess how much um, self-awareness or, or coping mechanisms you become aware of over time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point. And that's something we definitely want to explore in our next part two episode, I guess, where we do talk with the caseworker and psychologist to talk about all the systemic challenges in the Australian society when it comes to South Asians. Um, but I guess going back a little bit, Sri, to your personal experience, at what point did you identify that what was going on around you was domestic violence? Because I feel like, like maybe it was just in my home, but like we weren't really taught about domestic violence. Like you're not taught the term, you're not taught how to look out for it. I feel like I heard it from others or saw it in movies or something, but it was never really spoken about. But I'm wondering, I guess, you know, for yourself as someone who was in a situation of domestic violence, when did you identify it as that? Um, I don't think there was a key moment, but I do remember, um, I think it was year nine actually. Um, so when I was younger, I went to high school and there was like a PE lesson. Um, there was a workbook where we had to work through and had to say what kind of behaviours are classified as, um, I can't remember the exact exercise but I remember seeing something where it was like an object being thrown at you or something like that where students were asked to say if that's bad or not um, and we took it home to my mom to show her so I was like mom look this is a homework but I have to like lie that this is not happening to me um, and that I have to acknowledge that this is a bad thing but I know this is happening to me and I remember her being silent um, so I think that was a moment where it was just a more vocalized thing like, hey, I am aware more explicitly that this is a wrong thing and I have to wow. um, pretend like this is not happening um, because I know if I mark it as anything other than no, this is bad, um, that it would be followed up. And I've definitely heard of kids in my school that have, um, you know, flagged something up and social services rocked up at their door so this was like something that I was told by my mom or my dad at that time so it was like stuck in my head so when I saw that I realized that this must have been an activity that that other student might have brought up but yeah I think that was one of the more explicit conversations I had. Wow that would have been so confronting right to see that as a child and realize like hey this is what's actually happening at home. Yeah I think I came to terms with it I was more that was during a time that I was having conversations with my mum being like, why are we here? Um, I noticed through the years that the violence got more extreme and um, it had less and less limits to it. So I think I started to question it more and kind of argue back more as to why are we not leaving. And I guess, yeah, there was a point when my mum would say like, oh, I want you kids to have a father. And I think there was a key moment when I told my mom, I was like, well, I don't want this father. If, like, if mm. that has to be my father, I'd rather not have a father. Mm. And I think that was the key moment that she kind of realised. She's like, wow, my youngest daughter is telling me this. I've been holding out because I want both my kids to have a father. So I think that's when it really hit her, me just saying that to her explicitly. Because I think, yeah, it was all implicit. It was all, like, not directly spoken out. Yeah. I think that 
cultural difference of how the Australian society versus the South Asian society deal with domestic violence is something that sometimes people take for granted. Um, I think for me, the first time I realised that cultural difference is going to come in a very silly way. But Russell Peters has this joke where he says at school, he went to a white friend's house and when the friend played up, he said, you know, don't do that because you're going to get hit. And the friend said, no, if I get hit, I'm going to call the child protection agency and it'll all be mm. good, right? But for mm. him, that reality was completely different because we're taught different things about the relationships within a family context that make things like this more normalised than they obviously should be. Mm, definitely. How about yourself, Priya, from your point of view? Were you able to identify what you went through as domestic violence? Was there a point that made you realise that or was it a build-up over time? Only came in adulthood, really, um, when mm. actively seeking more information to process what I have gone through after recognizing the effects of trauma, after having a panic attack and seeing a psychologist actually. Mm. And as the psychologist um, talked me through different ways that childhood experiences can manifest into adulthood, mm. I started to see an unbelievably clear lineage that I thought was really scary. Mm. And that was when I decided to actually look into it a little bit more and I learned about spiritual abuse and financial abuse and coercive control yeah. and gaslighting. And suddenly all of these things that were, you know, just a tantrum or just someone blaming something on someone else for some reason actually had very clear names and were part of the statistics of domestic abusive relationships so that honestly came in my late 20s to 30s, realising there were so many different forms of abuse happening. It wasn't just different people with yeah. different personalities disagreeing on stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes when we think about domestic violence, the first image that comes to head is physical violence, right? But to your point, mm. domestic violence can take many different shapes and forms that sometimes, like you said, you don't realise is domestic violence until someone can call yeah. it out when they see that. And even on the violence spectrum, what I'm also learning is everyone's definition of even physical violence is so different. So mm. through a glass, but not at me. Mm. Threatened me with a knife, but didn't stab me everyone's definitions are actually very different. And when these things happen from such a young age, you're not able to talk about it to anyone else. So you can't actually work out what is normal and what is not. Yeah. It is really hard to recognize violence. Yeah. Mm. So in my example, other forms of abuse that were prevalent were things like, although my mom worked and for most of her life, two jobs that were bringing in a lot of money, my dad would always make it really clear that it was his money. And on top of that, there were always conversations around every single good decision, every decision that was beneficial was always his, but every bad decision was always hers. And that would always be reiterated through many conversations. There was also just, I guess, getting really angry. And although most of the violence wasn't what I call, I guess, direct violence, like throwing a plate but onto the floor or threatening with a knife but not actually using it, there were moments where it was physical. Um, and all the other things that have happened that uh, I guess I didn't really realise was actually a form of abuse were unsubstantiated accusations of cheating. 
like completely unsubstantiated accusations. And I didn't realize how actually that's quite a manipulative action. And um, the other thing I guess I want to highlight is behaviors that actually my mom had that I didn't also recognize were strange and, and, and reacting to the situation, like behaviors like that, that I never was able to really recognize. Mm. Mm. Um, so much like Korea, I think it's important to highlight that it wasn't always extreme physical violence. There was also other acts of violence that are a little bit more harder to label if it's not discussed as commonly. So some examples um, from my situation were things that my dad would know would annoy my sister, my mom and I, um, and he would purposely do it more. For example, um, he used to do this annoying thing in the car where he'd breathe and whistle in a way, and he would lock the windows so that we couldn't get rid of the smell because his breath would smell, but he would continuously do that for the whole ride. So it would be uncomfortable even though we would complain he would pretend like he never heard us. Other things he might do is he would pretend to drive recklessly to kind of frighten us. Oh, I did, it was frightening, but I did realise after a point that, oh, he's doing it only when there is no chance that a collision could happen, but that took a while to fight through the panic. Um, other things were, I guess, emotional name-calling. There's a term in Sinhalese called burua, which just means stupid or donkey, but it just means that you're stupid. Um, he'll call all of us that, which is a shame in a way because I grew up with my mum being called that constantly and I think, unfortunately, it was ingrained in me and my sister's mind that my mum was not as smart as she was. But obviously that was just because my dad kept calling us that. And I guess recently, actually, in my own like therapeutic journey, I realised that some of the words I tell myself is that word because I hear that my dad telling me that. Um, so it shapes your worldview of not only yourself but of others as well um, so that's important to realize that that's like a long-term effect that might take place even just through a simple act of name calling um, and then financial was something that impacted us quite a lot so it was quite normal for a male of a house to look after the finances you see that quite frequently and it's accepted and that's okay if there's a level of trust that's not abused and in this case it was so my mum's income would always go to my dad and my dad would you know take care of it and that was fine until we realized that we wanted to leave and as soon as he realized that we were trying to leave um, not only did he cancel all my mum's access the day that we left so me and my sister and my mom had no money at all but he also took my grandparents money in Sri Lanka right and so little things like that um, that seemed okay like to trust the male figure of a household to look after the finances became an issue later on. So I think I want to highlight that it's important to kind of think of these things as how much access do you really have to your own finances and start to think about being a little bit more independent or being curious about where your income's going and how it's being controlled. And it's taking more and more power away from you leaving a situation of domestic violence, right? Because you're losing more in your own um, autonomy. Mm. Um, we heard a little bit before with Priya sharing about how her experience with domestic violence had taken away from the kind of relationships that she sought in the world around her and how she saw those relationships. How did the trauma of domestic violence affect you, Shri? Um, yeah, so I think personally I realised that um, some of the negative self-talk I'd do to myself had the underlying um, belief that I was stupid because of the name-calling that my dad would call me. I think that was 
a major impact and I think in my own relationships I guess I'm very hyper aware of money and making sure everything is equal mm. definitely played a role into how cautious I am with money and how much I save and how much I don't spend on myself for sure. How were you able to recognize that I guess as an adult that it was because of these things that had happened in your childhood this is how they've manifested because those are big realizations to make about you as an adult now and making that connection to all the things that happened in your childhood which has led to that right? Yeah I think the financial thing came clear once not just in my own relationship with my partner but just the different spending patterns between my mum, my sister and I. So once we managed to establish ourselves away from my father, I was still very cautious about money. And then I'd get annoyed at my sister and my mum for spending so lavishly on something. Um, because I had ingrained that like, I guess you need to prepare for emergencies and you need to be cautious and there could be a scenario where all of a sudden you don't have control of your own money and you need money. So I remember that being a tension point for many years um, me getting annoyed that my mum would spend money to treat me and my sister on expensive gifts and I'd be like, why did you spend money like this? And I realised very quickly when I heard certain words, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm being my dad <laughs> in this way. Like, why am I being controlling over how my mum spends money? And that was a huge moment of self-reflection that I have issues around money now that this has happened to me. Um, so that was made pretty clear very like soon after, I think about two, three years after we left my dad. And then the realisation of my own self-talk was honestly really, like, recently was this year, actually. I'm still, like, I've been seeing a psych for a while. But, yeah, it was this year when I really fell deep. I'm like, what am I really telling myself? And I guess it was interesting because it was the Sinhalese word. And I'm not really fluent in Sinhalese at all, um, but I could hear my dad saying those words. And I'm like, what does that mean? I was translating it to my, my psychologist. And I'm like, oh, I guess it just means I'm stupid. And then I'm like, it clicked. Like after two separate parts of our um, therapeutic work together, it clicked. So it's, it just made me realise, I'm like, oh, mm. those words that were echoed throughout my childhood, I still hold with me. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're really fortunate in Australia to have access to those mental health care plans. I know it's not perfect um, in Australia, but it's definitely better than in many other parts of the world where we do have access to some of these resources to get help in the ways that we need. Um, there is, is a part of me that realizes like I obviously have told my mom that like those words that my father echoed to like me and her and how it made me view my mom as stupid as well but I want to highlight that when me my sister and my mom were outside and we were living together and we were away from my father um, I was in complete awe of my mom she had changed completely when we were trying to leave my mom couldn't even read an invoice she didn't even understand how to read and bank statement she didn't know what the plus or negative sign was and to go from that to three jobs to look after my mum sorry herself my sister and I and also get my grandparents from Sri Lanka down so four dependent people on my mum she became such a strong strong woman and it inspired me to see so much growth from someone that got married at such a young age and to change completely to be so independent that completely amaze me so I think that's something I wanted to highlight because the stupid thing was while like, we were with my father um, but like after we left she just became such a strong independent person and I think she even surprised herself over how much she learned and did. No that's amazing as well. that's really powerful mm. thanks for sharing that's that. It's incredible. Um, in no ways should we be comparing people's experiences with domestic violence 
and I don't mean to be doing this when I'm asking this question, but I think both of you have slightly different stories in that tree. Your mum, sister and yourself were able to leave the situation that you were in and uh, Priya, your mum decided to stay, which I'm sure there were a lot of cultural factors which played into that. Um, Sri, do you mind just sharing a little bit about what that process and transition was like? And then Priya, if we could hear a little bit about what you felt knowing that your mum wanted to stick in a situation which was obviously very toxic for not only her, but the extended family as well. So that's a very big question. (laughs) Um, There is a lot of events that happened for us to leave. It wasn't an easy leave. I'll be honest about that, but I want to be very clear in saying that it was definitely worth it for myself, my sister and my mum. But it was very, it was difficult. The cultural or community, rather, the community was not as supportive around us. So I, we lost a lot of family friends that, and I'm just going to be really raw with this, in my eyes, um, they couldn't handle the split. They wanted us to be happy and they were only there for us in happy moments. They were definitely explicit comments being, oh, just go back to him. Oh, he's your father still. He loves you. You know, those comments coming from people that we really trusted and it was difficult to share our story and then to hear them not support us to leave was very difficult, especially as they often would be like, oh, we're so shocked. We didn't know that this was that bad. And just the fact that when they would meet us, it was only for a short period of time and they will say for us to get back together, but they don't realise that that's our life, that they only get to see for an hour or so, but we have to live with my father for much longer, um, just for their comfort. Rumours had spread that um, were, I guess, facilitated by my father saying that my mum cheated on him and that she's been sleeping around, so wives didn't want their husbands to talk to my mum, and it was just not a great experience. Um, and then services were also very limited in understanding mm. our situation. They were very judgmental as to why my mum stayed for so long and I will say initially when we left there was no place for us in the sense there's no um, family violence accommodation so my sister and my mum and I had to split up for a while Um, so my sister was old enough to live by herself and she found accommodation and I was still going to school so me and my mum lived at a halfway house but it ended up being a bit dodgy there was other people with addiction problems that my mum didn't want me to be around so um, there was one friend that helped us and I will say she was also from the Sri Lankan community that really stuck her neck out and um, I managed to live at my friend's house for three months to go to school with her while my mum stayed at the halfway house and my sister stayed at accommodation and that was difficult um, but slowly my mum got a hold of her finances through legal services that have helped her here and there, pro bono work from different lawyers and we managed to all be under one roof again and so yeah it was a difficult journey but the three of us definitely got really close during that time and repaired our somewhat strained relationships as um, Priya was mentioning earlier it does um, the family violence is not just the strained relationship between the victim and the perpetrator it does make a strain amongst the other people experiencing it so during the time that we were with my father the three of us were we weren't close. We were all kind of looking after ourselves in some way. But whilst we were leaving um, and getting back together, it made us so strong. Thank you for sharing that. So from my perspective, having my parents choose to stay together or my mum choosing to stay with my father 
the best way to describe it is that it, it's really complicated. There is constantly that conflict within myself of wanting to be grateful for what both of my parents have done and given me and wanting acknowledgement of the trauma that was caused. And that debate has been really hard over the years when I've become more conscious of what's actually happened and how it's manifested into my life. And there was a period that I was actually very angry at my mum. And there was a period where I blamed her for keeping us in an unsafe situation. And I'm not particularly close with my mum, so I didn't necessarily share it. But I had this kind of harboured anger. And the real kind of moment for me where this anger shifted was when we got into an argument and I was definitely not in a stable place and saying not nice things. And she just kind of yelled at me and said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what it's like to live in this community, to have to face these things, to have grown up in that context. And without going into too much detail, because it is hard to hard to talk about, it was a moment for me where... I guess I stopped using my values and my logic and applying that to my mum and forcing that upon her and rather recognised her reasons, acknowledged her context. And a big part of how I have since that instance decided to understand and I guess process what's happened is in recognising that I have my feelings and my definition of happiness and safety, but my mum has hers mm. as well. Mm. And the way that I am able to find comfort is not necessarily the same for her. And I cannot dismiss her context and her values that she's been raised in her whole life. It's hard when you do feel this sense of justice and you don't want to condone the abuse of your father in this instance... But in the same respect, I think if you really also want that happiness for your mother as well, there is an element of, of trying to meet halfway. And don't get me wrong, in no way, shape or form has this been easy. But this is sort of the process that I'm working through now. And I guess what I've recognised is really important is now knowing that about her, how do I look after myself and my family in these situations? And... Finding a middle ground that works between the two. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like domestic violence is, and, and leaving domestic violence is brought down to something that's very black and white. You leave, you're happy. You stay, you're unhappy. But it's not that black and white. It's very grey. And when you bring in the mix of cultural values, it's even more grey. And so it's an ever-long journey and I think it's really important with the multicultural country that we're in that we recognise that it's grey and it isn't, you know, you leave or you stay as a solution. There are other things we can do in the interim to, you know, make these situations better that aren't as conflicting for people. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really important point because, you know, how many times do we hear stories of domestic violence and then we make comments of, you know, why didn't they just leave? Why didn't they just do this? Why didn't they do whatever? But like you said, it's so much more nuanced and complicated than a simple black or white answer. 
And it's also like easier said than done, right? If you're someone who hasn't experienced it, it's easy to just throw that out into the universe. But then for those who have, it's a lot more complicated, like exactly like you just said as well, Priya. Um, And one of the things both of you mentioned throughout the episode as well is a lot of the cultural barriers that comes with being South Asian and stigmas around, you know, even like divorce and leaving people and stigmas around domestic violence. And that's something we definitely want to unpack a bit more in part two with the, the caseworker and psychologist. But I guess what we want to touch on now and something Priya you've just mentioned is, you know, how are you both now with dealing with with what you've gone through? I think there is that kind of ever long unpacking, but overall there's a sense of relief of being able to finally Mm. talk about it and process it. That has been massive. And for that reason, in my stable mind that I'm in right now, I feel like I'm in a really, really good place. I've found a lot of power and energy in how I use this knowledge and understanding to move forward, not just for myself, but Mm -hmm. also move forward as a community. And that has actually been more therapeutic than I thought it would. I thought it would make things harder. I'd feel more traumatized and be reliving it. But I think with a mix of a good amount of self-awareness and understanding more around mindfulness, it's been something that's felt very empowering. Mm, that's awesome. That's so great to hear. How about yourself, Shri? So I guess similar to Priya, I'm kind of doing work within this space. So I've spent a while um, understanding why the community may have reacted the way that they did when we were trying to leave. So I've understood, I guess, come to terms with why they reacted that way. And I'm hoping to bring awareness to the community with hopes to, I guess, yeah, I guess bringing change from within, um, building awareness and um, I guess hoping to change the narrative and hoping to facilitate a better way to respond. Well, firstly, it's great to hear that both of you are in a really great space at the moment. Um, And I guess that's even more reason why it is important for people like you to be sharing their stories, because Mm -hmm. for anyone who might be listening, who is in a place where they are navigating through domestic violence, it's proof that, you know, things can get better. So thank you once again for sharing both of your stories and experiences with this topic. Um, And just on that note, for anyone who might be listening, who knows someone who is experiencing domestic violence or might be in a place where they're experiencing domestic violence themselves, is there any advice that you would give to them in terms of where they can turn to or any next steps that they can take to start the process to getting them in a more safe position? So if you're currently in an abusive relationship, if you're in immediate danger, you should call triple zero straight away. Um, Another great service is 1-800-RESPECT, which is the domestic violence hotline, where you'll be provided with services and, and options and support. If you are more looking for some conversations or initial discussions with someone, my recommendation is to always try to seek someone who professionally works in this space whether that be a counsellor or psychologist through an assistance program or first point of call can always be your GP. If you don't feel comfortable talking to any of these people, really anyone that you trust who you think you can start to have this conversation with, but the, the complexities we've already highlighted, I think really demonstrates how, I guess, complicated this is. And so the faster you can get to professional services who are experienced and knowledgeable in this space, the better. 
I do want to highlight something though, being South Asian and dealing with these issues coming from different contexts and values, it can actually be very difficult to be understood by non-South Asian people. And so where possible seeking South Asian support or an organization that specializes in that space may be more comfortable. Mm. And there are a couple of organizations that I'd be happy to link through this podcast. Uh, that can be a great first point of call if, if that's the sort of support you are looking for as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important call out, which we'll address again in next week's episode about some of the unique experiences of South Asian Australians being in domestic violence situations and mm. some of the barriers that exist there. Yeah. I guess as Priya was saying, I think it is important to specifically go to South Asian services that are tailored to discuss family violence um, because from my experiences we definitely did have both South Asian and non-South Asian practitioners that often would not provide us with the support that we needed Um, and in certain situations when we were wanting to leave they would I guess question our desires to leave especially if they were South Asian they would normalize it and which made it difficult during that time. Um, I know that typically it is more comfortable to talk to friends and family but I guess we faced situations where we told friends and family and they were discouraging so that knocked us back a few times and so it was a difficult procedure and I just want to highlight that there might be situations where you might open up and they might not believe you or they might minimize what you're experiencing and it is difficult for sure but there are services that specifically are able to talk to you about Mm. this and I want to highlight one thing is that you don't need to be needing to leave or be ready to leave in order to talk to these services. Mm. If you just want to talk and just rant or just cry or complain about your situation, these services specified for South Asian communities can be helpful there for you too. Um, It's just like I think it's worth talking to someone and letting someone know about your situation at least. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because it doesn't have to get to an extreme to start having those conversations, right? Like you can start the conversations early so that you can identify these things and be able to tackle it as it continues and as Mm. it um, happens as well. So I think that's a really great point that you brought up and really appreciate you guys sharing so vulnerably. I know we've been recording for a little while now and you guys have been really great with everything. And I think the information you've shared and tips for anyone else who's listening right now that might be going through it will also be really useful because it's such a nuanced situation. There's no one right answer, I think, when it comes to domestic violence and how to deal with it. But I think, you know, having these conversations will hopefully just open up people's minds to how they can tackle their own situation as well. So thank you so much to the both of you for coming on and for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. I know that our listeners will be super grateful as well to know that two people have come forward and shared their stories, which I'm sure, you know, maybe some parts of it other people can relate to as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We are so grateful to our two inspiring interviewees who were open enough to share their stories. Again, we want to stress that if this topic is triggering, please don't hesitate to speak to someone and reach out to services like 1-800-RESPECT. Also be on the lookout for the second part of this series next week, where we interview a caseworker and psychologist on the prevalence of domestic violence in South Asian communities, the systemic challenges for South Asians to seek help, 
and the changes which need to be made as a whole. We'll catch you next week.